All right, it's three o'clock, and that means I can start drinking. Um, <laughs> good morning. Oh, good good afternoon. Good Sorry. morning, or, or whatever. Um, you are in the Dreamlands and Dream Narrative panels in H.P. Lovecraft. If you are not supposed to be here, leave. If you want to be here, congratulations. Welcome. Um, I'm going to read the, the prompt, and then I'm going to have our panelists introduce ourselves. We're going to talk maybe 20, 30 minutes. Then we'll take uh, questions from the audience. And in the last uh, five, 10 minutes, I'm going to let them talk about what projects they're working on. And so we're supposed to run from 3 to 4.15. So at 4 o'clock, I'm going to turn it over to us so we can uh, pitch our own stuff. Cool. All right. So the Dreamlands and Dream Narrative in H.P. Lovecraft. Dreams figure prominently in the work of Lovecraft, both in his dream cycle stories and in other works. Our panelists explore the geography and denizens of the dreamlands and his use of dreams in fiction and poetry, what were the major influences on his dream writing and how did his own dreams invade his waking life? How have writers expanded on or modified his ideas since? Close your eyes and find out. So, introductions on the far end. Oh, okay. Uh, hi, my name is Jason Bradley Thompson. Um, I am an illustrator and um, game designer. Uh, I am my most, I guess, my biggest connection to the Dreamlands. I've always loved uh, the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath and um, the other H.P. Lovecraft dream stories. I did a uh, graphic novel adaptation of uh, Dream Quest and a couple of H.P. Lovecraft's other stories um, that are that are fantasy related. Um, I've also done a, a map of the Dreamlands. Um, and um, in addition to doing some other work for role-playing games and for Call of Cthulhu, I am working on a Dreamland role-playing game. So uh, that is, um, that's how I came to this, this dreamlike place. Hello, my name is Jim Chambers. Uh, I write a lot of short fiction and novellas. Uh, I have written a collection of Lovecraftian novellas called The Engines of Sacrifice and I've written a number of Lovecraftian short stories that have appeared in various anthologies like Shadows Over Main Street and a couple of other places. Um, I have not written anything in the Dreamlands, Dreamlands context uh, to date, but it, it's something that's on my radar. Uh, and I'm also, uh, I write graphic novels and uh, won the Bram Stoker Award for Kolchak, The Night Stalker, The Forgotten Lore of Edgar Allan Poe a couple of years ago, which was a, an original graphic novel starring, if you remember the old TV show with Darren McGavin, uh, Carl Kolchak. I'm Krista Carmen. I also write a lot of short fiction. Um, a couple of days ago was the one year anniversary of my first short fiction collection coming out through Unnerving. It's called Something Borrowed, Something Blood Soaked. Um, I'm, I'm, I will potentially bring a slightly different uh, perspective to this dream panel. When I started writing several years ago, the very first personal rejection I ever received was about how your story should not hinge on a dream. So the first time I read the dream cycle stories of Lovecraft, I was sort of like, huh. Um, and I do think in my own work, I, I have certainly not written stories set within the dream cycle world either, um, but a lot of my work has to deal with psychological horror and um, mental health and addiction-based horror and operates within sort of a dream logic, uh, so I can definitely appreciate the dream cycle stories for, for that aspect as well. Awesome. Uh, I'm Pete Rolick. I'm a novelist and short story writer. I've written uh, 
Reanimator's Weird Company Reanimatrix. I've written two stories set in the Dreamlands, The Gumdrop Apocalypse. This is about fairy tales, um, breaking the, the bonds and letting Shubnigareth in through the moon, and then having to uh, marshal the Aldar cats to, to, to fight. And then the posthumous recruitment of Timothy Cotton. Uh, well, a couple chapters of The Weird Company were also set in the Dreamlands. Uh, so I'm slightly qualified. I might not be, but they they put me on this panel. So yes. So let's start at the end with Jason. Um, let's talk about the geography of the Dreamlands, and and you seem to be preeminent in that field right now. Ooh, well, um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I, I feel that as Lovecraft describes the Dreamlands, they're very. Um, they're, they're, they're fairly mutable. Um, it, it seemed like a lot of Lovecraft's sort of mythos concepts, the, um, it seems like it developed over time. Like, um, you know, when you look at like the doom that came to Sarnath, it looks like he maybe is talking about the ancient past of our world. Like it's sort of these almost, you know, Conan, like prehistoric forgotten, forgotten cities, the stories. But then later retroactively, a lot of these places became part of the land of dreams in Dreamcast of Anand Kadas. It's like, oh, Sarnath, yeah, that's over in the dreamland, of course. It's not like some, it's not next to Turkey, you know. Um, but I, I kind of feel that's, uh, that it's okay to, this can be reconciled, um, you know, within the, the fiction in that play, maybe places that are, that are old enough, they cease to exist in the waking world, but they still live on in dreams, you know, with these medieval cities or these ancient, Ancient places, and when and uh, when you look also, I think at the Lord look uh, the work of Lord Dunsany, which is such a big influence on Lovecraft's Dreamlands. It um, it it's, it's, it is sort of about like a, a worldly fairy tale space, but particularly in the older stories, it's also very much like mythological and kind of ancient biblical. This kind of ancient sort of a orientalist uh, sort of world that is um. You know, about this seems to be of this kind of like unchangingly ancient place. So it, it's, um, you know, so there's a lot of different uh, different ways to look at it. And the way I prefer to think of it is uh, is that the world of dreamlands is is infinite, and that all of these interpretations can can coexist simultaneously, like the dark and surreal together with the sort of fairy tale and you know that labyrinth of Jim Henson um, and uh, and all of the other all of the other interpretations. <clears throat> I, th I think uh, I would agree with that, that it's infinite, and I think to some extent it's malleable, um, just in the sense that like a dream, certain things, if you if you read uh, some of the stories, in particular the dream quest of Unknown Kadath, uh, certain locations seem to sort of come into existence as needed. They're not referenced, but he hits a point in the story where, okay, where does it go next? And it's, oh, well, of course, it's, a, it's to this region, and these are the cities there, and these are the the strange things they do, and it sort of unfolds in that subconscious way that, um, you know, th these are things that are not known until that point, in a way, and that shapes the geography. Um, but it is, I do find it a little odd, too, and you can't, I guess, try to track this too realistically, the, the time it takes to travel in the dreamlands and the routes that you can travel, the very many different routes, and how long it takes ships to travel from city to city versus how long it takes them to sail to the moon. Um, so it's all very, I think, contained in that kind of uh, 
that dream state, that I guess hypnagogic kind of experience where things are seemingly real, but they're they're not hinged to the, the normal foundations of reality. So we kind of agree that the dreamlands are infinite, but small. Things are, because travel is short. Well, if you're flying on the back of cats, or then well, you don't get anywhere. The, the cats do seem to move fast. And yes, I, I would have to agree that I also, um, I mean, like any, any well-written story, things that are on the page appear differently in the reader's mind. And uh, when I first started rereading some of these stories to prepare for this panel, I, you know, would read something and then I, I would, I would, you know, Google image Dreamlands maps and I would look at all different ones. And it's funny because you can look at one and think, oh, you know, this is, this is a really great one. This is how I envision that and this makes sense based on, you know, strange timelines. Um, and then you could read another story that's that's very directly related to even within the dreamland some of the stories are, are more related to others of course um and then you can look at that same map and it suddenly doesn't make quite as much sense and, and you can look at another one that you know it it's it's very varying in in dream logic and a dream state in that hypnagogic sense so I, I definitely agree with what was said by the other Yeah, there, there's that definite uh, dream logic and, mm -hmm. and that plays with space and time as it's important to the characters at the, at the moment. So if they perceive it as a long journey, it will be a long and difficult journey. But if it's just something that has to be done as a perfunctory task, it's done. And we don't seem to... Go ahead. Oh, uh, this is going a little bit away from Lovecraft's Dreamlands, but um, in the book, a version of the never-ending story, there's a, which, which has stuff that isn't in the movie. I love the movie, too, but um, there's a sequence where later when the main character is um, dreaming places into existence, and uh, he's, just like, he's just like, wouldn't it be cool if it were this place, essentially? And then, and then that, that area appears and comes into being, and all the inhabitants of Dreamland who are you view the main or are fantastic? Sorry, who view the main character as their sort of this great hero? They're like, oh yes, you um, you dreamed this place into being, and it, now it has always existed. It's always been there, and and you dreamed it into being at just this moment. Um, so uh, so yeah, there's a bit of a there's a bit of play with. I mean, of course, I'm not. I'm talking about a totally different author, but I, I feel this in the vein that you could think there's a different a bit of play with time as well as with space, um, and um, and also in the in the Dreamland uh, in the Dream Quest of Anu there's a cool sequence towards the end where Carter is flying on the night guns over the backs of you know on the backs of the night guns to Kadath, and he's like, and it describes like they're traveling over, they're shooting, they're traveling at the speed of like a rifle bullet, and so they're traveling over like hundreds and hundreds of miles, you know, but it's all over in like a really quick time. So there's, yeah, like there's a lot of play, it's time and space. Yeah, it's very elastic and it's weird because Randolph Carter in that, in that story in particular, he's aware he's asleep, he's aware he's dreaming, he's aware in the dreamlands, but he has no control, no conscious control over things to change his circumstances. He doesn't seem to be able to dream into existence something that he needs and he goes from these one town to the next and well, you, you want to take the ship with these guys going to the other, this other city, and he's got to wait four weeks for that ship to come in. So, you know, you'd think in a dream, a conscious dreamer, I guess it kind of bumps up against the idea of lucid dreaming, where you're supposed to be able to control what happens in your dream and maybe direct it. And 
for the most part, he can't. But then you come to a sequence like the one you mentioned where they then speed it up. So I don't know if it was just intended to be sort of the subconscious way that people affect dreams or if Lovecraft just wanted to get the pace going a little bit at that point and didn't want to you know, spend pages describing their passage over the, the wastelands. Uh, or, or is it possibly that he's transitioning from being a dreamer to a great dreamer? As one yeah. who is subject to dream worlds, as opposed, <laughs> and then opposed to one who can actually influence and create it, like Curanus. Yeah. Who, uh, it's, it's also how our dreams work, right? Everyone knows that you you can be in a dream where it takes. <sighs> I don't even know if sometimes hours and minutes are at work in our dreams, but you can go down the street in a dream and it takes, you know, the eight hours of your sleep night and all these crazy things happen, or you can just transport there. So I actually, you know, like I said jokingly when the panel began, I, I sometimes have issues with the dream cycle stories, like why do I care about this if it's if it's all just a dream? And, it, you know, I, I do like the, some of the ones where what happens in the dreams it obviously affects what's happening in the real world. Those, those to me are, are much more interesting. Um, but you know, it's it all works so well within each story. The the dream logic and the the travel to me just always makes sense. It works much better for H.P. You know, it works for H.P. Lovecraft because that's the the situation he has set up. To, it works a lot less in like the last season of Game of Thrones, where all of a sudden you can travel from Westeros to Winter Winterfell much shorter than you could before. Like you don't have those problems in the H.P. Lovecraft stories because that's the world that he's created for you. It's it's, um, it, it's interesting. So, in almost every kind of uh, fictional story that's described as like a dream world, the dreamers have some sort of um, control or ability to shape reality. Um, but I feel that in, in like Dream Quest and those stories, it, it kind of it's implied that it's there, but it's a lot subtler than like Inception, where it's if the dream where somebody is like, oh, I really let's fold the city in on itself, you know, I love like the moon crash into the earth, you know. It, it feels like in dream and um, the Dreamland cycle in general, it's a little more. Um, it's a little. It, there was kind of that's kind of maybe happening in the background, but I can't. You're right. I can't think of a scene in Dream Quest where they. Um, it's not like where Carter is like, oh, I gotta make the city, Sunset City, appear. Rah, you know. Although maybe on the other hand, you could say that it's happening subconsciously, and it's like, oh, it would be great if a horde of cats appeared right now and saved me, and then then the horde of cats appears and saves them. I don't know. Okay. Uh, so we did mention Lord Dunsany. Who else do you think influenced Lovecraft in developing the Dream Worlds? Um, the the. the the last story uh, is obviously influenced by E. Hoffman's Price, uh, but and greatly so. And his his interest in um, what is it? The esoteric uh, uh, mysticism and whatnot. But who else are we talking about here? Do we besides Dunsany? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I think that um, the whole idea of a dreamland. I, I almost feel, uh, it, it, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to throw this out there and I don't know the answer, but it seemed like that was a word, the word dreamland. I, you can see it used in a lot of other stuff from the 1800s, like, um, like, like Alice from in Wonderland, that's very close to dreamland. You can see other stories that are about like fairyland, and there's even other novels. I mean, I don't think anything major, but like some obscure novels that are, and short story collections that are like, like uh, there's one called Tales of the Golden Dreamland. 
And it's not Lovecraft's dreamland, but there are a few other peoples that are using this term. Um, and it's sort of almost being used, like, I guess Edgar Allan Poe had his poem called Dreamland. So, and so the question is, are they talking about a literal dream, like we think of, like the state of dreaming, or are we talking kind of about like a fantasy land or fairy land? Um, I guess I didn't really answer the question. Um, but there's- Well, it was kind of in the general consciousness, that the, the concept of a dreamland at that time, and of course, I don't know if Lovecraft read comic strips, but there was Little Nemo in Slumberland. Yeah. Um, which probably put that idea into a lot of people's uh, on a lot of people's radar, and he was known for having very vivid dreams that inspired a lot of his fiction. But there's there is one author I do think I know I don't know this for a fact, but I would be surprised if William Hope Hodgson hadn't had some influence on particularly the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, and particularly the Nightlands. Um, if anyone has read that, it has a very similar, it's a very different setup, but. The character, the, the protagonist in that exists in a present that uh, we can assume is actually even in the past for Hodgson because the whole thing is written in a um, uh, very archaic style that uh, for about 50 pages is kind of quaint and then um, becomes a real slog to read. <laughs> Uh, but it's a, it's an amazing piece of work, and it's really, I think, an overlooked um, landmark in fantastic fiction. Uh, the character has a relationship in his, his present, and things go awry with that, and somehow, but he has these weird dreams, and he shares them with this woman that he's in love with. Uh, they have dreams of similar things, and they realize they've seen the same things in their dreams. And the relationship doesn't work out the way he wishes it would, and he winds up uh, by a, a mechanism that's never really explained, transported to the end of the world, the dying, a dying Earth scenario where he's one of several million people who are holed up in this gigantic pyramid uh, that goes under the ground. Um, parts of it are subterranean, and there's another pyramid that's smaller, but it's distant. It's across the Nightlands, and they all communicate telepathically to some extent, and there are these codes they use to make sure it's humans talking, not the weird gods and creatures that inhabit the Nightlands, and they get a distress call, and the protagonist goes out to cross the Nightlands, and he's potentially gonna be the first one to ever do it without dying, um, and it's, it's less fanciful than the Dream Quest story, but it's very similar in how it unfolds and how he has to cross this bizarre, nightmarish land and he discovers these weird creatures and it has its own kind of dream logic to it. Um, in a sense, it's not specifically a dream, but you don't really know because he's becomes conscious of his past. So you, it's never quite clear if he really has been transported to the future or if this is some kind of hallucination or dream. And I think there are parallels there that would make me think that Lovecraft probably had read that. And I think he did acknowledge Hodgson, Hodgson in general as an influence. So that might have had some play on it. Yeah, uh, two days ago, I was on a panel about E.T.A. Hoffman and his influence on Poe, Kafka, Lovecraft. Um, and you know, there's there's not a ton of evidence, or at least that I found directly linking Hoffman to the, the dream cycle work, but we talked a lot in that panel about Hoffman's sort of dream-esque stories, you know, the Nutcracker and the Mouse King and the Rat King. Um, you know, it, it, is that whole battle a dream or is it reality? Um, you know, the Sandman, um, the protagonist 
the whole experience with the Sandman as a youth and whether or not he, you know, really saw this man, you know, be responsible for his father's death and the Sandman being, you know, the, the threat of the Sandman removing your eyes as a child, you know, was that really something that he experienced or was it something that he had dreamed and just took with him the rest of his life? Um, so it's interesting to look at that potential uh, influence on Lovecraft. And then I was wondering myself, and I'll sort of, if you don't mind, ask a, a question of whether anyone else on the panel knows. Um, you know, obviously he, there's a, a lot of dream cycle stories and they weren't all written at exactly the same time. So I was always curious and I couldn't really find the answer to this. If once he started writing a couple of these stories, if he really set out to write a dream cycle series, or if they really just sort of organically unfolded and then fit together in the way that we see them now, I wasn't really able to uncover that. It, se it seems to be debated whether he did or not, but it seems like it's that's also debated for the Cthulhu mythos stories right. and whether or not they're all supposed to be connected. It was one of the most interesting things when uh, I started refreshing my memory about the this particular area of Lovecraft's fiction was that uh, there's a lot if you go online and look for information I've found pages saying that these are all part of his one big uh, world and it all connects and I've found other people saying no they're two separate things he didn't mean those connections and so I mean to the extent that he set out to write a series I couldn't say but it, it it seems like he just kind of did the same thing he did with his other stories, which was just draw on a lot of the same common elements to tell a new story. There is the, um, the very, very short, like one-page fragment of a novel called Azathoth, or Azathoth, which um, Lovecraft wrote, uh, which he claimed was going to be a, um, like a, uh, a fantasy adventure in the style of um, the novel of Vathek by William Beckford. Uh, William Beckford was a... Um, like a rich, eccentric British guy in the early 1800s who um, was obsessed. He learned he learned Arabic, and uh, he was obsessed with uh, like um, the Arabian Nights. And he wrote like a fake, uh, a pseudo Arabian Nights fantasy novel called Bathek. So I think uh, maybe arguably that's also an influence on Dream Quest. Um, and arguably, uh, Azatos was a like an early draft of Dream Quest. I've heard that um, suggested. But unfortunately, what we have of it is only one page long, so it's, it's very difficult to figure out what it could have been like. But that, so maybe he was sort of planning it out? Yeah, that's interesting. Well, so he links the Dreamlands to Richard, through Richard Upton Pickman, and then Pickman is linked to everything else through you know, name dropping and various other stories in the Necronomicon. That's not accidental. It's that's a conscious thought. We don't just pick Richard Upton Pickman's name out of the hat and and use it for this story. And then he shows up in the Dreamlands, and he's he's a, he's a ghoul. So there's a conscious act there to to link those together. How extensive that's supposed to be, we we can't ever be sure of. For me, the fun what that's one of the fun things about Dream Quest is that you get to see these creatures like the ghouls who um, in a previous story, there are these terrifying monsters that you really don't want to go near, and they're really bad. Um, and suddenly in Dream Quest, they're like these friendly, they're like big fluffy dogs, and the hero is like, oh, I love you ghouls, and here's some, have some bones, and let's hang out. Um, so it, and it's funny that uh, in Dream Quest, it's, um, it's almost like he's taking these things that were like 
he's taking that were horrific and dark in other stories, but then he's, he's sort of doing his like, he's flipping them and he's like, you know, actually, I know they're horrific, but I love horror stuff, so I'm just gonna have Frankenstein be my friend in this story, you know? So, um, uh, so, it, may, so it, is, it does feel like, yeah, he's kind of bringing it all back together. I always think of the Dream Quest story as like the remix of his greatest hits. The characters <laughs> in the Dream Quest or in the Dreamland stories like all appear there to to great delight. Yeah, it's funny. There's a point. You know, the, the first portion of Dream Quest in particular is sort of light and very fanciful and imaginative. And then there's a moment where he does go. Uh, I forget the exact turn of the plot that winds him up with the ghouls, but it almost feels like Lovecraft is writing and going. I got to make this darker, you know, where it's like, I need more monsters. Um, and it, it, it's, but they're no less horrific in, I mean, yeah, he treats them like they're friends and he is friends with them because of his friendship with Pikmin, but they're no less horrific. They're still eating bones and corpses and they still burrow through the earth and they fight with these other horrific uh, creatures. Um, and they have, you know, their bizarre relationship with the night gaunts, which are even more frightening. So it's weird that he does kind of, it's, you're right, it's like he took all those monsters and said, no, no, these guys are my buddies, I'm part, or maybe, maybe he saw Randolph Carter as somebody who fit in better with the monsters mm. than with the real world. Well, um, I've heard it suggested that like, um, uh, that like in, Dream, in Dream Quest, that Dream Quest is kind of following, in a sense, the model of these kind of like, these sort of stereo, now, now really dated adventure stories, you know, where like, the guy, the, the British explorer, would go to like the faraway place, and he'd befriend the, lo- the local tribe, and then they're like, oh, they're like, hey, yeah, totally, become our king and lead us into battle. But it, but in Dream Quest, instead of humans, they're they're ghouls and night gods. So maybe that makes it actually aged better than if it, than otherwise. So I don't know. Hmm. All right. So you mentioned ghouls and night gods. What about the men of Lang? Well, and how does Lang? Bridge, oh, it's a hard question. How does Lang bridge the gap between the waking and the dream world? It's in both, right? And or no? Mm-hmm. Or? It, I mean, yeah, it does seem to have counterparts in the real world and in the dreamlands. Based, on, you know, if you read across all the stories, but so, so do so many other things, and they're so different in one. I mean, Nyarlathotep in the Dreamlands is so very different than any other depiction of Nyarlathotep in terms of, you know, he comes down, he's actually having a conversation, he's kind of uh, snarky, <laughs> and you, you know, it's just not at all what you expect from the crawling chaos. So, it's is it the same Lang? I think that's the question. That's, that's a good question. Yeah. Or is it a, is it a dream Lang? Yeah. Or, or or is it the real Lang and the waking world is dream. the dream? And that happens, how, how often does that happen in the stories? Right. Which is the waking version and which is the dream version? And, and yeah. sometimes they swap and swap again. Yes. And go well, ahead. Yeah, I mean, Lang feels kind of Tibet-ish. And I mean, we know those, I mean, I'm pretty sure that was one of the places that Lovecraft and like Western like exploration writing was really obsessed with at the time because it was still like this inaccessible place, right? Um, so I, I, it feels like there's a little bit of that in there for, for good or, 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 or bad. Hmm. All right, so who has Lovecraft's Dreamlands influenced? Who has, who has dabbled in the Dreamlands and who has obviously been influenced by it? 
I'm, I was at the panel yesterday on Lovecraft's influence on King, and I can't help but think also, um, I mean, it's part of what was spoken about in that panel, is it's, it's hard to see, you can never say what the direct influence was. Like, did King say, oh, you know, I want this to be mirroring this Dreamland story in this Dark Tower story? You know, probably not, but the unconscious um, influence is definitely there, and, and I definitely see uh, at least like the, the mythos aspect of the Dreamlands in the Dark Tower series, um, and in the same way that little pieces of that also show up in the larger mythos of King's world, like other stories have pieces of that, just like other stories in the Necronomicon have pieces of the Dreamlands. So I think King would prob you know, probably be one of the people that was influenced by those stories. Yeah, I don't know if I can think of anybody other than King who's been directly influenced. I know Brian Lumley wrote a number of stories set in the Dreamlands, uh, which I have not read, so I can't really comment on those. Uh, the, but the hero, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're adventure stories. Yeah, um, there's been, uh, Ice Don uh, they're quest stories, and they're, they're enjoyable. Uh, um, I, I like reading them, um, but I think they stay pretty, they don't map any new, new geography for me. I, I, I don't see they add much to those the, the, the Dreamland stories. It's pretty much the Dreamlands as Lovecraft yes. described them. Right. Okay. Um, the Dark Tower. That's that's yeah, totally. That's totally true. Um, of course, there's all. I mean, there's. I guess a big one of the last couple of years would be the Dream Quest of Velvet Bow. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which it doesn't really describe new places, but it's really it's really new, and I really love that book. Um, and uh, in the 1970s, Gary Gary Myers did a collection of Dreamland stories yes. called The House of the Worm which I think is available on Kindle now. Right. Uh, those are really good. And uh, well, there's a new anthology of dream stories coming next year, I think, called, um, by, edited by Cody Goodfellow, called New Maps of Dream. It just got announced. <coughs> I forget what the publishing house is, but uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I just finished an anthology, I believe it's called Kill Those Damn Cats. <laughs> um, and they're all about the cats of Altar. And, I, I would suggest that maybe 50 to 60 percent of the stories are um, they deal with uh, someone kills an Altharian cat and tries to avoid paying the price. <laughs> um, they're all kind of entertaining and uh, honestly, it, it, I, I, individually each story was good. Uh, put them all together in one anthology, it's like, okay, I've read this story. <laughs> you know, like it was the story before. Wait, so, are you saying they're like cats? I love cats, but the, you know, to read five stories in a row about cat learning being run over by a car or an automobile or, or a horse, uh, yeah. And, but, did, but did they have to kill each cat nine times? Uh, actually, there is a story, and I forget the title, where there's a cat that has ten lives and everyone's freaking out <laughs> because it's violated the rules. Um, well, and, and then a Florida writer by the name of Richard Lee Byers uh, did a story, called, and his collection is called The Hep Cats of Ulthar. Um, <laughs> it's about an Altharian cat who comes over to the waking world and gets stuck in a jazz bar. Uh, and it's uh, hunting, uh, I think he's hunting a zoo, Zog, whatever, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. uh, that has crossed over and, and wreaking havoc in the neighborhood. Um, but you mentioned uh, Keith Johnson's the, the Dream Quest of Vela Bo, which I, the more I read it and read it again, the more I'm enjoying because it takes Randolph Carter's Dream Quest and not only gender swaps it, but flips it around. Instead of trying to get to the Dreamlands, she ends up trying to get out. 
and then she enters our realm, and it's just as wondrous and joyous for her because it's different. Um, so, so really plays with the idea of, of what is fantastic is really just based on your, your point of view. So, yeah. It's hard, hard for me because I... I kind of don't enjoy. Um, not, I'm just kind of going off of that to talk oh, about no. something else. But like the quest stories of the Dreamlands cycle are the ones that I enjoy the least. The ones I enjoy the most are, and, I, and they don't even have to have much of a plot, but just the ones that have more of a fully narrative arc story with a bit of a conclusion. Like like the Cats of Altar has that for me. It's it's like the other ones just don't seem to. They don't seem like stories to me. I don't know if you guys agree with that, but they just... And I think that's why, like, I... You know, I think we talked a little bit about this at the beginning of the panel. I've read, like, all of Lovecraft more than once, and the dream cycle quest stories, they never stick with me. I have to, like, constantly refresh myself on the details, but the the ones that are fully formed, you know, stories, those are a lot more enjoyable. And they even have, like, things that are close to sort of fleshed out characters sometimes ish <laughs> um, i don't know if you guys agree with that but i just always like like even the dreams of the witch house story that to me is a story <laughs> yeah that's a very different plot structure than dream quest of unknown kadath which has another element to it which i think um it, it's definitely a quest story but there's there's also this kind of in the background or at least i i sort of read it this way of elite dreamers and sort of trying to up your game to become different, you know, a higher level dreamer. And there's certain aspects of the dreamlands that are only available to certain dreamers of certain uh, credentials or accomplishment. And so there's sort of a game element to part of it too, um, which is very different from Lovecraft. Yeah, and I I had forgotten that whole part of it until I reread it recently. But I agree that the the Dreamland stories in general do stick with me uh, less vividly than his other stuff, for sure. And Pikmin's model, I think that's one of the that has you know real substance to it. And interestingly enough, I get more I, I do get more out of it like with the addition of Pikmin in the the Dream Quest story. It's sort of like more enjoyable to read Pikmin's model after reading that one again. I feel um, that like the sort of the fantasy side, the sort of Lord Dunsany and dream side. Well, there, there, I mean, there's two ways of thinking of dreams. There's the like dream. Oh, what a wonderful fairy tale! I, I wish there was on a castle in a cloud and I could write a Pegasus dream. And then there's the, like the more dark element of dreams and what we think of in dreams in the witch house and the other some of those other stories like uh, the thing in the moonlight. There's the nightmare aspect of dream, right? Um, and these kind of coexist uneasily in, in dream quests. I mean, I, I, I like them both, but, um, but uh, you know, there's, a, there's the terror, and then there's the wonder aspect, and um, anyways. All right, so I, one of the, you, you did mention there's how you deal with the dreamlands, and I have written some stuff about the dreamlands, and one of the things I, I had to figure out is, is how do you deal with the dreamlands in terms of H.P. Lovecraft's Cosmicism and his science fiction universe, um, and and what I came up with was that the Dreamlands are essentially a, a virtual reality that we can access, but it's not ours. It's the virtual reality of the Elder Things from Antarctica, and it's just sitting there. And it's where they used to go and play, 
um, to, to play at being gods uh, in, a, in a fantasy setting. Uh, so all these great ones that were wandering around, the other gods of the earth, are their versions of, of, of playing characters. And human beings are essentially NPCs. And as the older players have, have died off, the NPCs are just still running around. And new great dreamers are appearing. But they're not really in charge. They're just uh, usurping the, the system. I think that the I think honestly that Lovecraft's dreamlike stories to me they're so different from his later science fiction stuff that I don't even try to reconcile them as existing in the same universe. I mean, you know, it's kind of it's just it's just really hard to imagine the universe where on the one hand human beings are, are humans are insects, Cthulhu is gonna eat eat you. Oh, by the way, the whole planet is just a speck of dust. Uh, goodbye. With, was like in the dreamlands where of course it's sort of like bright I mean there's monsters but there's it's kind of on the other hand it's kind of like bright and like wow and kind of like like kind of like an LSD trip maybe and um, like a good one and um, and also at the end of Dream Quest Carter like basically caught defeats Narlathotep and like he actually actually like the universe it's kind of buried in there but like the universe dies and the Big Bang happens again, and is born again, and Carter is outside of it, and he comes back into reality. He's like, whoa, man. I, it, it's just, uh, yeah, I, I, um, I, I, I can't, I, I personally, I've, I mean, people do it, obviously, because, yeah, because the virtual reality idea is cool, and the Call of Cthulhu does it, but I, I think it's, there's so, such a different conception, because one is more like science fiction and sort of atheistic, and the other one is, well, it's also atheistic because it's Lovecraft and the gods still suck, but it's more like, a, it's just so much more fantastical and I don't know. Yeah, I think I, I like the idea of looking at it as a, um, an artifact of virtual reality, reality that's left by these, these uh, non-human entities. Um, but I think there's also the possibility that this is all really just Randolph Carter's dream and yeah. he's somebody who lives in Lovecraft's science fiction world and has some sort of awareness of the concepts of the old ones and the Arlothotep and Pikmin and all of these things. And that, you know, in, that, in the dream, we're not, he's, he's meeting Pikmin, but it, maybe it isn't really Pikmin. It's just he's dreamed that Pikmin has actually gone on to become one of these things he used to paint and things like that. Um, because if you try, I think if you try too much to fit it all together, looking at the science fiction stories through the lens of the dreamlands diminishes the the old ones uh, because then they are the, the levels of gods change and you've got you know Nyarlathotep wrangling these earth gods who are never really identified and then there's sort of another level of gods above him that he represents which is mainly Azathoth and that it even sort of hints there's something else above that and so it sort of becomes a different a different uh, view of the cosmos than we generally attribute to Lovecraft. But the idea of a virtual reality would be, you know, maybe also play into that sense of the competitive dreaming. You know, the idea that you can work your way up in in accomplishment, almost like a video game. Right. Yeah. Dreamland is an isekai anime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. I'm, I mean, I kind of agree. I don't know that I can add anything more perfect than what Jim just said. That's a really cool way to look at it. And I think um, I do agree that you, I, I don't like to look at the dream cycle stories as being super connected to the mythos as a whole, because I do think it changes the way that gods present and certainly not pulling it completely away from like 
you know, the gods are terrible, we're all going to die, but um, it, it just sort of slightly softens that aspect of it, which, you know, dreams slightly soften our, the horrors of our reality lots of times, so it makes sense. So we are going now to open it up to questions from the floor. Okay. Sure. So this young lady here. Yeah. So I was thinking, it's interesting that you brought that up, sort of like a virtual reality almost, or like an alternate reality, like an alternate Earth. Yes. Um, and in fact, in one of my, uh, so in the post posthumous recruitment of Timothy Cotton, um, Earth has become quarantined by the MIGO. They don't want us off the planet. Um, we figure out how to go into the dreamlands. And instead of going to the moon, we go to Mars. And we're using Mars as to build a giant fleet of starships to go back out into the real world and hit the MIGO from behind. Um, the problem is that as it, we're, they're, uh, when you go into the dreamlands, you change. You're not always human. Sometimes you're a cat. Sometimes you're a gug. Sometimes you, you change. And what the story is really about is about transhumanism and coming to terms with what does human really mean when you no longer look human and how do you work together as a society. The, the whole war thing is just a, a way to deal with that. But yes, a, a, a virtual reality, this also deals with the whole geography of, of the system. And you know, it's literally a 10 minute trip to Mars uh, in, in Dreamlands, because it's, it's short. We don't need, a, we don't need that journey. Um, but yes, that's what I'm. That's what I'm trying to do with my fiction. Sort of. I kind of one, one more question sure. before I let you go. I may have missed this part, but why do you think Carter was able to escape your lab attack? Do you think it was because it was his dream, or do you think it was because maybe Gar let him go, or what? Well, does he really escape? I mean, he. Well, he's he's given a, a task by Nyarlathotep and or Nyarl. I don't. I always pronounce it the wrong way. Sorry. <laughs> it's fine. It's not how um, and Yarlathotep tricks him in the giving of the task, mm -hmm. and he's he. Uh, he realizes that he's been tricked, while there's still time to change his course, and so saves himself. But he does actually complete the task um, that he's been given. So I don't know so how much he escaped, or Yarlathotep sent him off on this task, figuring well, one way or the other, he'll accomplish it, and if he. He doesn't figure out what I'm doing, and he just sails off into uh, too far into space and into the realm of the other gods. Too bad for him. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, right here. Um, just a quick question: To what extent do you guys think that Lovecraft's creation of the Dreamlands is actually is really contingent upon his atheism? The reason I ask that is if, if Lovecraft is going to create a realm, you know, this beautiful met metaphysical realm where people can actually go when they die. He's not going to be writing about heaven, right? He can only be writing about dreams. Do you think that there's a through line there? Yeah, I, I think coupled with the, to what extent were they based on his actual dreams along, you know, with, with that together, that could be a really interesting way to look at, at the genesis of those stories. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a cool way to look at it. and. Um, I would kind of like to go and look at the stories now that were based on individual dreams and, and then how, because I almost wonder if maybe, you know, if, if he did have that at the back of his mind, um, and then the, the stories that were based more on individual dreams, like if there's bigger differences that you could see between those stories. I don't know if that made any sense, but I'm, I'm interested in what you said, and I think it's a, a very good way to look at it.
games did you want to answer? I don't know enough about that aspect of Lovecraft to really comment directly, but um, I think the Dreamlands is more the place you go when you sleep, not when you die. So I don't know if he looked at it that way, uh, given the role of dreams played in his life and in inspiring his his fiction in general. Um, that's true. Yeah. The, well, that, that's a little different then. So I, I was thinking more just of, of Lovecraft. But if, he, if you're thinking that he was, he was kind of building that kind of place for characters, that could you could certainly look at it that way. Uh, in the technical blue. Thank you. Um, how would you guys distinguish Lovecraftian Dreamlands versus like Dunsanian Dreamlands? Like, what, what do you think are like the, the core differences there? Um, so, uh, that's a really good question. I, I feel that um, the, main, the main, I feel that you could almost say that they're set in the same world, honestly, in some ways. But um, the main difference is that in, um, to me, is that in uh, Dream Quest, the main character, it, it, the dream, well, it, I mean, if, if you think Dream Quest doesn't have a plot, then Dunsany's stories, like Idle Days and Leon, they really do not have a plot. <laughs> Um, they're really just about beautiful things and wandering around. Although he does have some that are more like little fairy tales. Um, I mean, it, he, the thing about Dunsany is that he never cared about building a cosmos. He never cared about putting these things together into a consistent world. That's something that only Lovecraft really did. Um, and uh, so that to me is the biggest difference. Is that in Dunsany, I feel like Dunsany, he's almost like he's so good at coming up with some new names that in every story he's just like, hey, here's another like 20 new names. Whereas Lovecraft wasn't as good at coming up with names, so he had to reuse them. And in the process, he had to build this world because he couldn't think of enough, you know, even if he didn't want to, he had to do it. But also, it feels like that's, that was his personality. He just wanted to tie things together. Uh, yes. Just really quickly, do you consider Lovecraft to be a classic surrealist, like, uh, you know, like in like Alice in Wonderland or the Songs of Malroar, or does he does he vary a little bit away from those genres, and that you know, and that he was kind of a little bit more grounded in reality? Like, I guess hard to put him into a genre, but do you consider him a surrealist? I just my gut reaction. I, I never have before. I've never considered a surrealist. Uh, I want to shout. Have you read Dream Hounds of Paris? Dream Hounds of Paris is a um, portrayal of Cthulhu supplement by Ken Haidt and Robin Laws. And the plot of that is that the surrealist artists like Salvador Dali and all those people in the 1920s and 30s, they discover the dreamland. And they go into the dreamland. And because of their artistic powers, they're capable of changing things in the dreamlands. And so they start messing stuff up and modernizing it, and at least this cascading chain of effects. And I think that's honestly one of the coolest. Well, that's a to that, that, there's this one surrealist dreamland story I can think of. In the yellow. Uh, was just, what was the name of the book again? Oh, it's called The Dream Hounds of Paris. Dream and then hounds, like hound dog. Okay. All right. Uh, you, sir. So, I'm sure you guys and a lot of you are familiar with Sidney's sign and um, his work. When I picture Pigman's art, that's what I'm picturing. He actually drew a dreamland, um, and we know Lovecraft loved this guy, he drew a dreamland uh, that's kind of similar. Like, his dreamland is full of things that people traditionally see in dreams. So, in one valley, there's things that jump out at you suddenly. Um, in one, like, ocean, there's octopus that touch you uncomfortably, you know. Um, in one, <laughs> That joke hurts itself. Um, but you know, um, 
the, the idea of Dreamland isn't, uh, I don't want to say it's, it's hard to execute, but it's not hard to come up with, because there are like Chinese philosophers who, knew about, who came up with the Dreamland ideas. Are there um, specific Dreamlands by other authors that Lovecraft was influenced by, do you think? Or do you think his Dreamland was just entirely his own creation? So that's a really, I'm probably going to already forget. It's really, you said it's an interesting, it's an easy concept to come up with, but not to execute. That's yeah. that's really insightful thing to say. Um, I've always sort of jokingly wondered what Lovecraft's diet was, because I wonder if it was really rich in vitamin B6, because that, I, mean, I don't know if you guys know this, but like vitamin B6 helps you remember your dreams. I don't know if you've ever taken vitamin B6, but it actually really works. And it helps you like remember details that you totally wouldn't remember otherwise. And I, I don't know the answer to your actual question as to like, well, like I think we talked a little bit about who we thought influenced uh, the dream cycle stories. I don't know of any other author that influenced him directly, but I do think it, it does seem to me that a lot of these things were things that he, you know, took from his actual dreams and then just really expanded upon um, from what I've read. Yes, sir. I, I was trying to hear the name of a book before, Idle Days, of what I couldn't really hear. Oh, that's a Lord Dunsany story. Idle Days on, on the Yan. I-D-L-E, idle like lazy, not idle like we worship the idol. And the Yan, like Y-A-N-N. -N. Cool. Yeah, you're right here. Me? Yeah, no? Yeah. Okay, yeah, sure. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, really quickly. Uh, do you think that the Lovecraft uh, had something to work out because he, he never released the dream quest. He dismissed the story and put it in a drawer. And maybe it's because of the ending of that story that the paradise is here. It's Boston, right? The story is to, to channel over Boston. And because of that, he is sort of therapy for Lovecraft. And he, when he reached the end of the story, there was no use for him to put it out because he it was his own therapy. He came to paradise is here and now, not in the dreamlands. Sort of a, what do you call it, a cautionary or a moral yeah. tale? My, my understanding is that he just didn't think very highly of his writing in that, and that it was not up to the snuff of his later work and his science fiction stories, and so he set it aside and sort of uh, dismissed it. But, I mean, it definitely seems like he's working something out in these stories. Uh, you know, Lovecraft dreamt uh, vividly and he didn't really seem to fit well into the real world and Randolph Carter is seeking this incredible city that he sees in his dreams but can't reach and spoilers hopefully I'm not, <laughs> uh, discovers by the end of the story that he has created that city and that he if, if he the, you know the carrot at the end of the stick is that if he goes there and does this task for Nyarlathotep he can live in that city and sort of kind of get his own reality so I wonder if that was something in Lovecraft's subconscious that he was working out with these stories is that he'd much rather live with the ghouls and the Nikons and the cats of Ulthar than uh, you know in Providence so my question to you guys what, what you thought about that that was sort of the question yeah, yeah. so, so uh, for, for me <sighs> We're always told that, oh, Weird tells writers you have to work through your Lovecraft stage and then you'll go on to be more adult, mature author. But, um, you know, so maybe for Lovecraft, he had to work through his Dunsany phase and get all that out of his system, get it down on paper so he didn't have to worry about it anymore. Uh -huh. You know, he had that stuff inspired, 
sometimes for when you write, you're not writing because you have a debt and you're gonna sell it. You're writing it because it's in your system. You have to get it out because otherwise you won't be able to write anything else. And or, or what, you're tr what you're trying to write will be influenced by what you don't want to write. I find this in my work is that if, if I get an idea that just won't go away, until I deal with it, I can't work, work on anything else. So maybe that's how he's working out his Dunzingy yeah. lust. I misunderstood your question when you said working through something. I thought you meant psychologically, not in his writing. <laughs> Both. Oh, okay. All right. So then we weren't too off target. <laughs> Who else? You, sir. What was the name of that story with the pyramids? Oh, uh, the house on the borderland? Which one? The, the With the pyramids? Oh, the Nightland. Oh, the Nightland, yes. The Nightland. Uh, also, uh, I know at least one podcast for author and biography of Lovecraft mentioned that he ate as cheaply as possible, and that that may have actually contributed to his death from cancer. He was eating really cheap canned goods that were uh, not to modern food safety standards. Yeah. Also, sometimes expired, but yeah. 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 Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, so I think we're talking about also the mind on my not being through but up. Again, I was thinking of uh, quite Barker's archaeology, if anyone has read that. Yes. There's uh, this idea of a dream sea and a certain concretity. It's kind of very similar in terms of with uh, the dream that because like, it's actually very, very physical. It's a place you can physically enter it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, the weave world and even Arabat um, yeah. and uh, the Thief of Always. They're all very dreamland-esque, right? It's a very physical, and it's a very many things. Like uh, uh, the thing that panelists talked about yesterday, like like many things about Lovecraft is actually very external and stuff internal. It's not like a it's not like a psychological dream. It's more like a adventurous dream. Yes. And it's a uh, a dream that's connected to the external world, like as uh, well and yeah, like the uh, the real God or whatever. <coughs> Uh, in the yellow first. Yes, you. Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to add to that list that the Clyde Barker stuff that you were talking about with the virtual reality and everything like that. Also, Ecto Kid. Oh, yes, yeah, right. Um, we all try to forget that those things happen, but they did happen. Yeah. So. <laughs> and an interesting fact, because you were talking about virtual reality and agreement, um, Lana Wachowski, back when she was known as Larry Wachowski, actually worked on the Ecto Kid and right, right. heavily influenced the Matrix. Right. All right, and the, yes, you. Uh, the question of like, what's real, is Randolph Carter as the dreamer real or the real world of Randolph Carter real? We know that there are two figures which are dead in Randolph Carter's real world, but alive in the dream world. There's King Karanis uh -huh. and also Pikmin. So, and we know also that the ghouls have kidnapped human children which then grow up into this degraded creature in the dreamland. So how do you see these two deceased figures who Carter knew in his real life and they both died from drug use, neglect, uh, general decay, whereas in the dreamland they don't have that problem. They're now immortal, powerful uh, creatures. Maybe. Um Maybe we could think of these things as different paths to take. These are paths that Carter's own life could have taken. He could have ended up a miserable drug addict and died because he loved the dreamland too much. Or maybe he could have mutated into some dream creature like, uh, like Richard Fickman did. But I don't know. Or is Carter 
an opiate uh, addict, uh, Lovecraft certainly would have known of um, De Quincey's uh, Confessions of an Opiate Eater. So is this all a hallucination? Is Carter, is Karanis and Pickman real, or are they just uh, figures of Carter's imagination to help populate his, his own personal dreamland? That's, that's an interesting yeah. idea. Um, speaking of, so Lord Dunsany did a dreamland-ish story called The Hashish Man, and it's about people who, um, within the world of that story, some people enter the dreamland, although he doesn't use that word, by dreaming, and some people endured by taking lots of drugs. <laughs> and um, one, and uh, so after the story was published, uh, um, Alistair Crowley, the Satanist, wrote to um, Lord Dunsany, and he like enclosed some some weed, and he's like, "I see that you have uh, you have some experience in dream and dreaming, but have you ever tried the actual drug hashish?" And Lord, Lord Dunsany wrote wrote it back, and he's like, "I don't, I never take anything stronger than tea." I just ignored it. <laughs> Another question in the back. I believe it's Kill Those Damn Cats. Thank you. <laughs> and the VR thing. Uh, the VR thing? Yes. Um, it's only, uh, it's like one or two chapters in my novel, sure. The Weird Company. The Weird Company? Yes. Okay. All right, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, interesting thing that some people try to do, and by interesting, I mean crazy. Um, in an attempt to justify a belief in Lovecraft's mythos, because some people really want to be edgy, they'll actually try to draw connections between people like Alistair Crowley, um, a brief occult geek out, he wasn't actually a Satanist, he practiced this own religion, he may not, the media was long to say, so sorry. But um, what is it like? So they'll claim that like Alistair Crowley, Lord Dunsany, and Lovecraft were all accessing the same dream world, and they'll like try to draw these parallels there. And the thing is, like, that's really part of the draw of it is that when these people describe these things, they seem almost real. Lovecraft's uh, mythos is obviously fictional, but it seems almost like a real religion that people in the age of past practiced on. And we all have dreams that seem almost totally real. So I think that's part of what the universal appeal is. It's just like everyone dreams, and, and sometimes you have dreams that seem kind of eerily prophetic, but probably not. But you know, like, it, it, it might be part of that, but it's it's just, it's always been interesting. I mean, this is more common than question, but it's always been interesting how, like, dreams so thoroughly impact uh, how we experience ourselves and how we experience a lot of things we don't even know about ourselves. And um, that like, um, it, it's literally so vivid and so thought out and so like, you know, um, enriching the people. There are people who actually try to justify a real belief in the dreamlands and the mythos and all of this stuff. So it's like, it, it's, um, it's just, it's, it's amazing. I, I tried writing dreamland stuff myself and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. My dreams are not consistent, but like, um, Vitamin B6. <laughs> I don't like work for a vitamin company. It's just cool to, to, to take it and remember your dreams. <laughs> Was he a happier guy? Because it seems like there's so much more positive 
you know, than, than his other fiction. His other fiction is so nihilistic and miserable. But then the Dreamland stuff is this, like, you know, I don't want to say fun, but, you know, like, kind of lighthearted, kind of, you know, surreal, kind of like, yeah, it's all going to be okay, the rules are made. It's, I wonder if he was briefly having a really good time or if, like, maybe he just wanted to change his tune. I think the dream cycle stories, I mean, they're wrote over, written over 15 years, or they're, they're definitely not all written in the same time period. Um, one more question before we, hey buddy, yes sir. We just uh, had a brief uh, colloquy about uh, what's real. There's another possibility, and that is if you're in the dream world long enough, you acquire certain powers which will allow you to persist in the dream world. Mm -hmm. Right. That would explain how Pikmin and Karanis can continue to exist, whereas otherwise, who would be dreaming them? Just as Carter can create new characters, someone would have to create them. Yeah, so from a force of will, you go from being a regular dreamer to a great dreamer, and then you become a permanent fixture in the dreamlands, yeah. and you can begin influencing other dreamers, because they now see you. You are, you are part of the greater dream. The elite dreamers. The elite dreamers, yeah. yeah. But then, then how, so then are you still asleep? Is this all happening in the course you of one sleep? Stay, yeah, well, it depends on how you got there, yeah, right? Yeah, I guess. Did you come physically, or yeah, did you dream yourself? Essence. Like, you've been in the dream world so much that your essence is like, like in Man of Steel. Like, you know, jor dead, but like, you know, they put the thing in there, and he can walk around and talk, interact with you. So like a, almost like an artificial intelligence version yeah, yeah, of, something like yeah. that. Like, uh, very Tronish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, before, I, I, I meant to talk about something earlier. So we talked about writers that were influenced by Lovecraft. One of the, one of the people who is not even secretly influenced by Lovecraft is uh, Larry Niven. Um, uh, the legacy of Herat, the river they've colonized, is the, they've named it the Miskatonic. Um, if you read his, uh, his, uh, his uh, VR gaming stories, there's always a Lovecraftian element. If you look at Ringworld, the secret rulers of Ringworld are the ghouls. They have set up, they are the one species that is endemic throughout the entire Ringworld. And they have set up a mirror system for communication over vast distances. Um, and they are fully accepted by everybody on this vast artifact because they deal with all the dead bodies. And they're, they're, every species on that, that ring accepts the ghouls because they are a necessary part of life. Uh, we were talking, so yes, they're abominations, they're, they're hideous, they do horrible things, but they're actually really, really friendly. Um, and it's a very Lovecraftian way of dealing with ghouls. So we have a few minutes left. I want everyone to talk about what they're working on, starting with uh, uh, Jason. Uh, yeah, I'm, um, I'm working on a Dreamland role-playing game. Uh, it's of course, the Dreamlands have been touched on in other um, Call of Cthulhu and other Lovecraftian games, but this one is all Dreamland all the time. Uh, so yeah, I'm and I'm, I'm bringing together um, Lovecraft and Lord Dunsany and a couple of other things. And it, and my feeling about it is, of course, in Call of Cthulhu, you're, the main the character arc is you risk losing all your sanity and going insane or being eaten. In Dreamland, your currency isn't your sanity but your memories. Because if you look at Dream Quest, Carter doesn't even remember it. He freaking lives in Boston, and the Sunset City is his own city outside his front door. Wake up! But um, 
So yes, in Yugen Dreamland, there's the terror of nightmare and from our last attack and everything, but there's also the seduction of how wonderful and enchanting everything is. And if you lose all your memories, then you'll be forever lost in dreamland and never wake up. So uh, that's what I'm working on. Um, if you want to know about it, let me come over and ask me. Cool. Um, I have a collection of horror fiction coming out next month from Raw Dog Screaming Press called On the Night Border. It includes two of my Lovecraftian stories and published for the first time a King in Yellow story that I wrote uh, not too long ago. Uh, other than that, I'm working on a, a horror novel that is definitely not Lovecraftian. Um, a graphic novel inspired by Frankenstein and as of this morning apparently a really cool anthology project that I can't say anything about <laughs> yet. Um, so I still have my collection, Something Barred, Something Blood-Soaked. Um, I had a story debut in an, in an anthology for this con. Uh, my story is called Cleaver Castle of Carnage Presents The Coven Strikes Back, and it is in an anthology entitled Behold, the Undead of Dracula, Lurid Tales of Cinematic Gothic Horror. So I'm pretty sure that that's the longest story in the longest titled anthology at this con. <laughs> There's that. Um, and then I also have some stories coming out in anthologies over the next year. Um, and also please come up and ask me. I've got a business card if you want more information. And I'm also working on a horror novel that's nothing like Lovecraft. It's like an 1800s Gothic New England uh, period piece. So. Do you have a title for it? Actually, no, not yet. Stay tuned. Untitled. Untitled Gothic Horror in, in set in Rhode Island. So that's, that's Well that's the title, the Untitled Gothic Horror set in Rhode Island. <laughs> it's very, that would be very Lovecraftian, the unknown horror. <laughs> so and I'm I'm your moderator, Pete Rollick. Uh, my new collection is Strange Company and Others from Gehenna and Hymnon, which came out I think last month. And uh, I've finished the sequel to Re my novel Reanimatrix, which will be called The Eldritch Equations. And hopefully that'll be out by next Metronomicon. Because I don't want to premiere it anywhere else. That's who I've been. Yes. Anyway, thank you all for coming. It's been a wonderful panel. It's been a wonderful con. Enjoy yourselves. Hey, everybody. Before we wrap up this episode, I'd like to take a minute to say thank you for tuning in. We hope you're enjoying the podcast from our interviews and actual plays to our rambling roundtable discussions. If you like what you're here and you'd like to support the show, we have great sponsors for you to check out. Birds of a Feather Coffee Company is a small batch craft coffee roaster and is our OG sponsor. They have three signature blends to choose from. The Morning Lark, which is a light roast. The Night Owl Blend, which is a rich dark roast. And the Hummingbird Decaf Blend. They also have the exclusive Legendary Brew, a nice medium roast coffee, perfect fuel for all those late night gaming sessions. If you use the code LEGENDS10, you'll get 10% off your order, and shipping is always free. So head on over to tinyurl.com forward slash Legendary Brew, or click on the link in the show notes. Thanks everybody for checking it out. We'll catch you next time. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.